Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Father God, Lord, we pray that you would come into our midst now and that you would speak your word of peace to us. We pray that you would breathe the breath of life, the breath of your spirit to fill us, Lord, to refresh us, to renew us, to empower us, to be like those first believers, Lord, who were of one heart and soul. Help us, Lord, as we look at your word, open our eyes, open our hearts to receive what you have for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we are still in the season of Easter. The season of Easter is the 50 days from Easter Sunday, which we celebrated last week, all the way to Pentecost. And it may not feel like Easter anymore. Uh, some people call this Sunday a low Sunday. Um, that's typically in a, an attendance uh, descriptor because there's not as many people typically on the Sunday after Easter. It's Easter because people are like, ah, we, we went, it feels good. Uh, that's all we need. But it also can kind of feel low emotionally. Uh, especially for clergy and for those who went through the whole sequence of Holy Week, you have all the emotional buildup to Easter and you scream your hallelujahs and then you ask, now what? Where are we? How, how do we go on in light of what Jesus has done? Jesus has risen from the dead. So what? Now what? What's next? Um, and really, the book of Acts is a place where we can look to start to answer those questions. And really those questions are the questions of the Christian life. We live in the aftermath of the resurrection. And we have to go on asking, if Jesus has really been risen from the dead, if he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's pouring out his spirit, what difference does that make for us now? So we're going to look at the book of Acts to ask that question. In the novel Housekeeping by the writer Marilyn Robinson, she describes a woman doing laundry and hanging up um, sheets on a line. And this is a woman who had just experienced a death and was grieving a death. And the act of doing laundry brings her some solace because it's something normal, because this abnormal thing had just happened. And Marilyn Robinson describes the moment in this beautiful way. And I want you to hear the words that she uses. She says, so the wind that billowed her sheets announced to her the resurrection of the ordinary the resurrection of the ordinary. The wind coming into the sheets, doing the doing of laundry, announced to her the resurrection of the ordinary. I think Marilyn Robinson intends that on two levels. One is that the ordinary, the day-to-day life, has been resurrected to this woman because she's in that process of grief, and there's always that point in grief where we don't think that we can go on, we can't get back to normal, and then suddenly we find that we do. But I think she also intends it in that the resurrection has something to say to us about ordinary life, day-to-day life. And the resurrection can really only matter to us if it matters to us in our day-to-day lives. Uh, And that's what we ask ourselves. Can this possibly have anything to do with our day-to-day lives? Does the resurrection have anything to say about the mundane, about the ordinary? 
the phrase resurrection of the ordinary may be a beautiful phrase from a beautiful book, but is it true? And I think that's the question that I'm asking, the question that I think we all ask. And I think these short verses in Acts have something to say to us about how the ordinary can be resurrected in front of us. So if you have your bulletin, uh, please turn to page two. The reading from Acts is there, or in uh, your Bibles, Acts chapter four, verse 32. Now the book of Acts is the sequel to Luke's gospel. Luke is the author of both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And the book of Acts traces uh, the work of the apostles as they go forth in the world and they start preaching this good news that Jesus is Lord, that he has come back from the dead, and that everything has changed in, in light of that. And in this book, we hear the first sermons. We hear Peter preach these amazing sermons around Pentecost. We see healings. We see the Apostle Paul come to know the Lord. And we see the gospel spread out from Jerusalem outward all the way to where the book ends in the city of Rome. So it's really the first bit of church history that we have. And what Luke does throughout the book is he gives us these summary statements of what life was like in, that, in the early church. What was it like for these first people who first believed in Jesus, who first heard these apostles proclaim this amazing thing that the, the Lord had come back from the dead? And what we have in these verses is some summer, a summary of what that early communal life was like. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I think that verse speaks to two things that are of everyday importance to us that can be resurrected in our own lives because of the resurrection of the Lord. And those two things are relationships and money slash possessions. What can be more ordinary than relationships? What do we give more mental real estate to than our relationships with others, how we relate to those in our lives, how well things might be going, how badly things might be going, how we wish things might be going, people that we wish they had relationships with, people that we wish we didn't have relationships with. Um, relationships take up a lot of mental real estate. They're among the most ordinary things. Um, we take them for granted in some certain sense because they can become so ordinary to us, especially to those closest but this passage has something to tell us about relationships. This passage also has something to tell us about possessions as a consequence of their relationships with each other and what they thought it meant to follow the Lord. They start to relate to their possessions and to their money in a different way. And what could be more ordinary than money? We have, we have to have it to eat, to have shelter, to buy medicine, to... Uh, enjoy the things that God has given us. It's, an, it's a necessity and it's an absolutely ordinary thing in many ways. But before we get to the relationship part and the money part, we have to look at verse 33. Because this is at the center of it. This is what makes the difference. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. So the apostles are in their midst and they are preaching and they're preaching the resurrection of the Lord and that is what is creating this community. That is what is creating this environment where relationships can be new and remade and where people can start to review their possessions and money in different ways. It says that they preached or they gave their testimony with great power and as a consequence of that, there was great grace. 
So everything that I have to say about relationships and possessions are under the umbrella in the realm of the great grace of the Lord. God has acted on our behalf in Jesus. He has given his son to the world. He has lifted him up as a sacrifice and he's raised him out of the grave as a vindication that he is the Lord's king or the world's king and the world's savior. Everything that we have to say about what's possible in terms of human relationships and what's possible in the way that we arrange our communal life is only a consequence of that. Only an overflow of the great grace and the great power that come along from the Lord. So with that in mind, let's let's dive in and talk about relationships and money. So two super easy topics. We'll breeze through this. We'll have you to baptisms in about five minutes. Or not. Um, So look again at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were of one heart and soul. There's a unity among these first believers. And what we know from Peter's first sermon, the day of Pentecost, that the Feast of Pentecost was going on, and that there were a great number of people gathered from all over, many nations, many tongues, many races, a diverse company of people. And on that day, many thousands believed when Peter proclaimed. So what we know about this group of early believers, even four chapters into Acts, is that they represent a great diversity of people. And one way that we know that they're diverse is in terms of their money, their economic standing. Because there are those who have the ability to sell what they have in order to give to those who don't have the ability, um, who are in great need. So the fact that it says that they are of one heart and soul is no small thing. This is in great contrast to how we experience some of our relationships, how we experience American society today. We are certainly not of one heart and soul. In fact, we are quite the opposite. And what Acts has to tell us and what the New Testament has to tell us, what the gospel has to tell us is that the resurrected Christ who pours out his spirit on us makes it possible for a diverse group of people to be of one heart and of one soul. It can feel a little bit idyllic and it can feel like well, yeah, they were there. They saw it. Of course they were all on board. Of course they were all singing Kumbaya. Um, But Acts chapter 5 traces, it gives us the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I I I don't know if you know that story. It, not everything was peachy. Even within the first generation, there was this, uh, two people who determined to lie to the apostles to get credit for something that they shouldn't have gotten credit for. And you can go home and read the story, uh, I wouldn't recommend it as a bedtime story, though, if you know it. A couple people die. Anyway, um, it's not, Luke is not speaking into an idyllic moment. He's not just reminiscing about the good old days of early Christianity. Even in those first days, they had to remember that something monumental had happened. They had to be reminded that things had been remade, that the world was new. So Luke is not just showing us some standard that isn't possible for us. He's saying this is what resurrection life, what new creation makes possible. And we see that their relationships are not in an abstract way, but they relate to each other in a very material way, which speaks to this second question of money and possessions. It says that they were of one heart and soul, 
and that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. No one said that the things that belonged to him were his own. What an interesting way to put it. I have these things, but they're not really mine. They're meant for something else. I am just a steward of them, meant to bless others, meant to meet the needs of others. They viewed their possessions in a different way. And let me be clear, Luke is not talking about communism here. Communism is a form of government where everybody's assets are liquidated and the government holds everything in common. This is exactly the opposite. What what he goes on to show us is an example of Barnabas who is moved in his heart to sell a field that he has in order to provide for the needs of others. It's someone on an individual level saying, I have something that I can give up in order to meet the need of others. That's not communism. That's Christian community. He goes on to describe what it was like. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So the resurrection makes this difference in the life of how they think about their possessions, their money. And money is, as we know, not just about dollars and cents. Money has a much deeper meaning than a figure in a spreadsheet or a number in a bank account. On one level, money for us can be about security. It's a way that we try to stave off disaster and disease and maybe even death, sort of buy our way out of anxiety. So money can be about security. Money can be about identity and significance. We try to use money to buy meaning in our lives. We say, if I simply had enough money, then I'll matter. Um, you may know the novel, The Great, the Great Gatsby. That's very much at the heart of that novel, that this character, Jay Gatsby, amasses this amazing fortune so that he might matter to this woman, Daisy, so that he might earn her love. I matter now. I have money. I'm significant. And of course, it ends badly for him because that's not exactly how it works. If we don't have money or if we don't have as much as we would like, we can often think that if we had it, that would be the key to greater meaning and greater significance and to greater security. But what the book of Acts is showing us is that if the dead are truly raised and if Christ is truly trampled over death by his death, then money itself cannot stave off death. He can. Our security is not in things. Our security is in him. And this is why the resurrection remakes our relationships and it remakes our relationship to possessions because we're not putting our hope in those things. Relationships often go sour when we put our hope in them, that it's the thing that's going to make me matter. Uh, or we're scared of the relationships. I can't give myself away. But we don't have to fear that if death has been undone in the resurrection. We don't have to fear giving stuff away. We don't have to fear that we're in charge of our own security because of the resurrection. That's the difference that resurrection can make in the ordinary life. If I'm blessed with resources, I can stop thinking about my perceived needs and I can start looking to the needs of others. If I'm in need, if I find myself in need, then I can hope and depend on the Lord and not in some abstract way, but to depend on his people to be generous, to help meet those needs. 
Generosity, then, is a marker of the resurrected life. If we are generous, if we are open-handed with our resources, if we think like these early disciples, that what I have is truly not my own, that is an evidence of a resurrection life in our own lives. But it's not just a marker of a resurrection life. I think it's a practice of the resurrected life. It's a way to practice resurrection in our life. Eugene Peterson has a book by that name, Practicing Resurrection. How do we practice the resurrection in our lives? How do we remind ourselves? How do we not slip off course like Ananias and Sapphira, like so many others? We wouldn't have most of the New Testament if people didn't forget this stuff. Paul writes letters because people forget this stuff all the time, even within living memory of the resurrection, even meeting eyeball to eyeball with people who saw the risen Lord. People have to be reminded of this. They have to practice it. So we shouldn't feel so bad that we do. It's just human nature to forget, so we have to practice resurrection. And generosity, I think, is one of those practices of resurrection. So that's one way that we can live in light of the resurrection. And I want to connect this to something that Jay and I both talk about a lot, which is this idea of being fully human. Um, as we are on the journey from being all Saints East Dallas to becoming St. Bart's, part of the vision of St. Bart's is that this is a place where people can come and learn how to be fully human. Another way to say that is this is a place where we're trying to practice resurrection together, living into the resurrected life. People who are fully human are living into, growing into relationships unified by love. That's what we want in our relationships. Even if we think Luke is exaggerating about them being one heart and soul, even no matter how cynical we are, we still want that. We still want relationships like that. And to be fully human is to have relationships like that. And to be generous is to be fully human. That is the marker of the man Jesus Christ. He gave. He loved so much that he gave. No greater love has no man than this who gives his life for his friend. The giving of life is the greatest act of generosity, and generosity is a marker of that kind of life. So we need to learn how to practice resurrection. So what are practices of resurrection? Well, I've mentioned one, which is generosity. We are doing another one right now. Sunday worship is practicing resurrection. The fact that we meet on Sundays is intentionally tied to the resurrection. The Jewish Sabbath moving from Saturday to Sunday wasn't just some bright idea somebody had. Can you imagine somebody saying, hey, maybe, maybe Sabbath should be another day? That would not fly. <laughs> Have you ever tried to change the mind of religious people? It doesn't work. They wouldn't move the Sabbath unless something cataclysmic, unless something monumental had happened. And Sunday is the first day of the week. In the ancient church, they called Resurrection Sunday the eighth day. So God created in seven days. He rested on the seventh day. And the eighth day is the first day of the new creation. We meet every week to worship together on the first day of the new creation, on Resurrection Sunday, to worship together is a practice of resurrection life. So too is Sabbath. Sabbath rest is a resurrection practice. When Jesus 
we, this was part of our meditation on Good Friday, the, the last station when Jesus is laid in his grave. It, said, it, it uses the language of Sabbath rest. Jesus is laid down in that grave in absolute trust that God will do what he promised, that he will raise him up. That's what we do when we Sabbath rest. When we cease from our labor and our toil, we say to God that we need your great power and your great grace to bring about life in our lives. It's not my effort that truly matters. It's not me answering a few emails or getting that memo done. It's about me resting and trusting. So Sunday worship is a practice of resurrection. Sabbath is a practice of resurrection. The Lord's table is a practice of resurrection. It is where we anticipate, not just remember that he gave us the bread and the wine, that he's with us in the bread and the wine, but to anticipate that heavenly feast, that Sabbath rest that is to come, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. So when we come to the table, we are practicing resurrection life. And in a few moments, we're going to witness another practice of resurrection, baptism. Baptism is a practice of resurrection. Paul uses the language of being buried with Christ in baptism and being raised to walk in newness of life in baptism. Baptism is a picture of the resurrection. And it is not just a practice of resurrection for those who are going to be baptized today, but for all of us. Because we all have the opportunity today to renew our baptismal vows. To say once again, we count ourselves among the baptized. We count ourselves among those who have been raised to walk in newness of life, who have been filled with the Spirit of God. To live in light of resurrection is to live in light of the new creation. To see ourselves as new Adams and new Eves. When Jesus came into that room on that day, as the Gospel of John told us, and he spoke his peace, he was saying that the battle was over, that he had won the victory, and then he, he breathes his spirit into them. That was an act of new creation. Just as God formed Adam out of the dust and breathed his life into him and became a living being, so too does God breathe the life of his spirit into us. Like that sheet filled with the wind, announcing the resurrection of the ordinary. The Spirit coming into us announces resurrection to us. And we're going to see that in baptism. We're going to be reminded of that. We're going to see those being baptized marked by a new identity. They're going to take the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That cha- and that will change the way that they think about relationships. They'll change the way that they think about everything that comes into their lives in terms of money and possessions. So I think that we can say that God wants to bring resurrection into our day-to-day lives. He wants to bring resurrection into the mundane. He wants to resurrect the ordinary. And we simply have to learn how to practice resurrection. And that's what I'm calling myself to in these 50 days of Easter and calling us to as a community is to practice resurrection together. And as St. Bartholomew's, it's those who are called to announce what it is to be fully human in Christ, to practice resurrection together. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that you declare your peace over us. 
And it's no small thing, Lord, that you have reconciled us to yourself so that we can truly know you and in being established in you, Lord, we can be open-handed with with our own love, with our own relationships, and we can be open-handed with the things that you've given us. Lord, help us to be a generous people as we practice resurrection. And I pray, Lord, is that we, as we witness baptism, and as we renew our own baptismal vows, Lord, you would stir in us a new resurrection life. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.